Well, it's, it's just so beautiful to be among you. I've been hearing about this church from my friend Danielle uh, since last spring, and she has such great love for this place and for these people, um, and I have caught that from her, but it's a very different thing to get a chance to be among you, and now I see why. Uh, there's just such a beautiful spirit among this group. I loved my time this weekend with all of you. Thank you for welcoming, welcoming me, those of you who are on the retreat. And, uh, you know, you didn't have to come back to church. You could have slept in. You got your church points for the weekend. God can't give you any more points for today. So I just want you to know, this is just on your own time now. The reading from Mark 12, beginning at uh, verse 28. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Alain de Botton, a philosopher who lives in the United Kingdom, was uh, asked to do an experiment. He was asked to live at Heathrow Airport, one of the busiest airports in the whole world, the main airport in London, where uh, uh, thousands of international flights come through. He was asked to live there for eight days, 24 hours, sleep there, live there, eat there, eight days, and to watch human beings from all these different cultures, all these different places, crossing through this uh, uh, transition space and to see what uh, he could uh, uh, learn about human beings in this time period. Alain de Botton is a philosopher, and they said, could you figure out sort of what's going on with people by observing for eight days in this particular place? So for one day, he decided to stand outside for eight hours to stand outside the main exit point where people were coming into the landing in the airport and then they would exit the airport for the first time and, uh, and then begin to head to their cars or to meet people. And he sa- sat there for eight hours just watching people come out, people come out. And he noticed something. He said every single person uh, would come out, and as they exited the airport, they would scan the people who were waiting, even when they knew no one would be there. Even when they knew they fly into this airport every week, they are commuting someplace, still, as they exited, they would just glance and scan. And he said in that moment, each human being gave themselves away. No matter how much they had tried to protect themselves, no matter what kind of front they wore, no matter uh, how they were dressed, how stoic they acted, in this little glance, he said, you saw a window into the human heart. Because he said what they were doing is saying, maybe. Maybe there's someone waiting for me. Maybe there's someone here who knows me. Maybe my grown children decided to surprise me. Maybe my spouse is here with one of these little signs. Maybe there's someone here for me. And in that moment, it gave away the human heart. We want to be received. We want to be known. We want to be welcomed. We want to be recognized. We want to be met 
at the airport, right? And when we hear these primary verses, this sort of core foundational teachings that Jesus says, all the songs, all the religious instructions, all the doctrines, all the practices, they are reduced down to this. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And love others and love yourself. If it's not helping you do those three things, let it go. That's the root. And those three desires are always at work in the human heart. Always at work. We want to be held by some greater source of compassion. We want to know that our life is held, no matter what we've lived and what we've struggled, no matter who we are, there is some greater source of love that is holding our life. We want to know God. Every human being does. Some greater source of love. And the second desire is every one of us wants our lives to be a blessing to others. We want to feel as if our lives are a gift to other people. And the third desire is we want to know that we are living as we were created to live. I want to feel like I'm being myself. I'm living the way I was made to live. All my gifts shining, right? This is what it looks like. These desires are rooted in these three relationships that Jesus points to. And we kind of, we know this. We say this a lot in the Christian church. We know that Christianity is the practice of relationship. And we know that in the beginning was relationship. In the beginning, we were deeply connected to God, to one another, uh, to the earth, uh, to uh, strangers. We could feel that kind of transparency and availability. And that in the Christian faith, we're trying to repair and reconcile and bring together those relationships again. We know this is what we do, right? We practice relationship, loving others. Well, then why is it that the deepest damage that I listen to on this retreat, wherever I go, is from relationships? I mean, we're supposed to be loving one another, being in relationship with one another, but what I don't understand is why all of us aren't living as hermits. You ever been in a relationship? We get so deeply damaged and hurt. I mean, most of us spend our whole lives trying to recover from a relationship that was supposed to be loving and instead was deeply damaging. A father who never cared. A mother who was always shaming. A a, a love relationship where we completely made ourselves vulnerable and trusting and felt like we got uh, stabbed. I remember uh, my cousin Renee uh, when my aunt died, her mother. And I was, went to go visit her and I, uh, after the death of her mother. And I, and I said, well, you know, tell me, uh, uh, how are you? And she said, I just suffered the deepest injury I've ever suffered. And I said, well, yeah, I know it's tough to lose someone. And she said, no, 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 it wasn't her death. She said, the day before she died... A cousin who she hadn't talked to in 20 years called her, knew she was dying. And she said, I listened to my mother get on the phone, and after talking and passing greetings and saying things back and forth, just before she hung up, she said, I love you too. And Renee, my cousin, said, not once, not once did I ever hear my mother say that to me. And to hear her say that just casually on the phone to a cousin 
absolutely destroyed everything inside of me. She goes, that's what I'm trying to recover from. So we're supposed to be practicing relationships. We're made for relationships. And yet many of us know that it's the relationships that have been most painful, most difficult for us, inflicted the most suffering and pain. We know that in relationships, uh, often what we're doing is afflicting our suffering onto others. Right? Where you inflict um, all the unmet longings that we have, we put them on others. Or all the unsoothed fears become sources of pain for those around us. All the ancient wounds in me become a, a reason for my own reactivity and anger and a source of scarring towards others. Uh, we know this is in relationships. So, one of the things we have to do as a church is figure out how to teach all of us again. We have to go back to square one. How do we be in relationship? What does love look like? Don't just tell me to love others. I need to be taught. Relationships are dangerous. I can get injured. I can be hurt. I can have to go into deep hiding because I remember the last time I brought out an honest response to someone's question and the way they got frightened or scared. So I want to just talk to you about what it means to be in a relationship that is loving with others. We spent this whole retreat, for those of you who were there, trying to understand our relationship with God and our relationship with ourselves. But how do we relate to others? As Christians, the first thing you try to do when you're with other people, the first thing we try to do is see them. The first thing we do is just simply see each other. This is the beginning. These are step ones of how to be in a good relationship, how to practice love with others. It's just to see them. We try to see other people with the eyes of Jesus, transparent eyes, open eyes, the way you look at a loved one for you parents when they're sleeping. And you just take them in, right? Uh, you know, when we first come into this world as children, as infants, our first line of communication is through the eyes. Before we can speak, we make eyes, right? When you fall in love with someone, what do you do? You make eyes. You open your eyes. It's one of the most intimate forms of communication. I remember being on a bus when I lived in San Anselmo, uh, north of uh, San Francisco, and I had my uh, one-year-old daughter on my lap. We're riding the bus into the city. Bus is crowded. She's standing there on my lap. A woman comes onto the bus. She's uh, looks... She's all gnarled up. Her shoulders are hunched. She's got two shopping bags. She's got a frown on her face. She sits down. Her, her face is like a crab apple, just lines, and it's crinkled. And she comes, and she sits in the chair next to me, and I say, good morning. She says nothing. And we sit there, and I'm holding my daughter. Now, remember, when you're first in this world, what's more interesting than a human face? And for my daughter, this is a very interesting face. Look at all these lines and look at how her brow is down. And so in, I'm trying to give this woman her space, but my daughter's peering over. She wants to look at this woman's face and try to meet her eyes. And the woman, seeing my little girl, look over her. She looks over and they start making eyes. And the woman's kind of smiling at her and kind of leaning in and leaning back. And my daughter's kind of giggling. And you know how babies do that when they'll make eye contact and it's so intense they shiver? And they have to look away, and so she, 
Grace, my daughter, is doing that. And they're, then they start smiling, and then Grace is giggling, and they're looking back and forth. So I see it, and I join in the fun, and I look at the woman and smile at her, and she immediately frowns. As if to say, this is not about you. I'm talking with her. Right? But we remember that kind of way of looking at each other. I remember Gallup did a poll to say how many people believe in heaven. It's the majority of Americans believe there's an afterlife. And then they asked them the second question. How many of you want to go there? Much, much lower percentage. You know, what they imagine is what heaven will be like is we're going to sit in these robes and sing holy, holy, holy over and over and over again for eternity. So, all right, why don't we try it with the uh, ladies starting and then the men will sing the odd verses. You know, we, we imagine it's going to be like choir like that. What I wish we would tell people is heaven is the place where you will be seen. Where you will be seen. Instead of through some agenda, some uh, filter that people often see each other, in heaven someone will really see you. Our first work to, in order to love each other is to see one another. And then the second step is this. When we're with other people, listen, hear, just hear. Just listen to what they have to say without judgment, without agenda. Often when we relate to one another, we are waiting, not listening. We are waiting for them to stop speaking so that I can then tell them what I want to say, right? They start talking about their trip to Hawaii. and We're like, when are they going to get done so I can tell them about my trip to Hawaii, right? We just wait. And the work is to be able to listen. This is how love is given from one human to another. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the whole world is looking for a place to be heard. And the last place they should go is the church. They're too busy talking. They're too busy talking. And you can actually listen someone into the faith. You can listen to someone into healing without having to speak a word. Uh, St. Francis knew this, right? He said, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. If necessary, use words. And so as Christians, when we hear this commandment from Jesus, not only are we supposed to look and see, but we're also supposed to be willing to listen and hear. Uh, A biblical scholar, Mark Canister, discovered that over 60% of the interactions that Jesus had with others, he listens first. Listening is his first move. And then he responds. And then he speaks after he's heard the heart of the other person. That's the way we practice love with one another. And not only do we seek to see and then listen, the third move is we allow our hearts to be moved. To love other people is to be willing to allow our hearts to be moved by their joy or by their suffering. And we see this pattern in Jesus. We see it in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 7. It says Jesus saw uh, the widow at Nen and was moved with compassion just by seeing her. He didn't know her story. We see it in the um, prodigal son, where it says the father saw the, his younger son walking back and was moved with compassion just by seeing. We hear it in the Good Samaritan, where uh, the Samaritan sees the man in the ditch and is moved with compassion. I lived on a seminary campus for 10 years, and they would teach pastoral counseling, you know, teach them how to care for others. And I hated when they taught this class. Perfectly normal human beings. 
right, that I would see on campus. You know, like I see some guy, Dave, and say, hey, Dave, how you doing? Doing great. Then he would take pastoral counseling where he's learning to care. And he would get the pastor's face. I know they don't practice that here. But in other churches, this sort of professional caring face. And so I would walk by Dave as he's taking pastoral counseling and say, good morning, Dave. And he'd say, hey, Mark. How you doing, man? And of course, I felt like losing control of my bowels right there, just to shock him, wake him up. This is the kind of face they would show. That's right, this is the last time Iaconelli's invited to speak here, but a couple of you were falling to sleep, and I had to kind of wake up. Did you say bowels? Uh, it's a biblical word. Um, so what I wish they taught in pastoral counseling is, all you have to do is look and see. All you have to do is move away everything inside you and just listen, and your heart breaks open naturally. I mean, how many of us, we've, been, we've seen these images on our computer screens, on the television, in the paper, of people hurting in the Middle East? For my kids, 18, 16, 11, we have always been at war there. America has always been involved in wars there. And they have seen story after story, some woman wailing after a bomb that went awry and she lost her house or lost her family. And we're tired of this story. It's an old story. We don't want to hear one more story about a soldier coming back flat-eyed and the spouse saying he's not the same. It's a boring story. We want to know what's going to be at the Academy Awards Uh, what's happening in local politics. We don't want to hear this anymore. But the work as Christians is the next time we see that woman wailing is to look at her and to listen to her and to allow our hearts to break open. That's the way we stay alive. That's the way we get free. That's the way we come home. That's the way we cultivate love is to be willing to look and listen and be moved. And then we simply respond and do what's natural. Concrete acts of love. After our hearts break open, how do we, we simply offer acts of kindness. We simply respond in whatever way is most natural to us. You see, we're given a heart like God's heart. We're naturally compassionate. And when we look and listen and feel, uh, then we automatically seek to respond, to ease the suffering, to expand joy, to help people's lives flourish. But it takes a willingness to be present, to be available, to listen. I want to close with this, uh, this image. One of the best examples of this is from my younger brother, uh, Trent. Um, he called me right after uh, New Year's uh, a while back. And he said, uh, Mark, I need some help. You know, do you have time can I, can, can, to listen? I said, yeah. He said, well, here's, here's the deal. He said, um, I got a phone call from my friend Robert, and he asked if I would uh, uh, meet him during lunchtime, during my lunch break, at the county courthouse in Santa Rosa. And I s- said, sure. So he said, I go down to this courthouse, and there's Robert. And he's with his girlfriend, Amy. Now, Robert, my brother's in a rock band here in the Bay Area, or up in the North Bay. And um, he, I knew who Robert was. Robert's the guitar player. And this was about 10 years ago. And, and uh, he said, 
I go up there, and there's Robert, and he's with his girlfriend, Amy, and they say to me, uh, we need to get married, and we want you to be the witness. And my brother's like, what do you mean you need to get married? He says, well, we just found out Amy's pregnant, and we're not married, and Robert hasn't spoken to his dad in five years. And his dad is an elder in the church back in Missouri. And if he finds out that we're pregnant without being married first, there'll be no chance of reconciliation. So we need to get married right now. And Amy was in a similar situation. She hadn't spoken to her parents down in L.A. in two years. And she said, if they find this out, uh, I'm also going to be, it's going to be much more difficult to repair this. So we've got to get married. So my brother says, I, we go to the courthouse, we're waiting for the county clerk, people are getting permits for land easements and paying fines, and he said, we go all the way up, uh, the woman breaks out the paperwork, they write a check for 25 bucks, we sign some papers, they're married, and we all go back to our jobs. Except my brother says, I couldn't do it. He says, I was so disturbed that this is not the way to start a relationship, this is not the way to start of a family, that I uh, have just been driving around. I just called in sick, I've been driving around, and I finally have an idea, and I wanted to ask you about it. I said, what is the idea? He said, I want to throw a surprise wedding. (laughs) This was my honest response. Trent, don't do this. (laughs) We don't throw surprise weddings in this culture. Surprise party is one thing. And I said, you get some friends together, have a little celebration for them, let them know you love them, but don't do the wedding thing. It's complicated. And this is my younger brother. And he said, "Uh, you know what? I kind of had a feeling you were going to say something like this. I'm doing it. (laughs) Younger brother. So uh, he starts planning this thing. He and his wife, Andreka, uh, they decide we're going to do this wedding. So it's it's January. She, his uh, in-laws have a house up in Napa, a little working class part of uh, Napa, and behind their home is a farm. And they decide we want to do it on the land where the farm is. So they go to the farmer. They say, hey, we... Uh, uh, my wife's parents have a fence that goes against your farm. We want to pull the fence down in the springtime in May and open that land up and do a wedding there under that large oak tree you have there. Farmer says, no way, you're not doing that. You can't pull that fence down. My brother says, let me tell you why. And he tells him the story. He's friends of mine. They feel deeply ashamed. We want to get their family started right. The farmer listens and he says, well, can I come? My brother says, you can come. He says, okay, you can tear the fence down as long as you promise me you'll put it back up. So in January, they dig up the ground there and they plant bulbs, all these tulip bulbs that are going to be the wedding aisle. They put a trellis there and they plant uh, roses that they're hoping are going to bloom when they're going to do this wedding. They get this whole thing set up. Then they have to figure out tables, chairs, all this kind of stuff. I told you my brother's in a band, so he has no money. So he goes to these party supply stores. No one will donate the stuff. He knows there's wineries up there, so he goes around to some of the wineries, starts asking them, hey, we've got these friends. He shows up to one winery, the owners are there, it's a couple. He tells them the story. We're trying to throw this surprise bar, we don't have any money, these folks are ashamed. And the couple listens, they say, we will give you tables, chairs, tablecloths, vases, anything you need, and we'll come and deliver it ourselves. You just tell us where, we'll do it, we want to be a part of this. So they agree to come do this. He then decides, we can't just have the party, we got to have a reception, you know, afterwards, we got to get together, but we don't have any money and we don't have any food to do this. So he goes around to some catering companies to see if they'll give him a deal. He talks to this one chef up in the Napa area, and he tells him the whole story, and he says, we've got people donating chairs and tables, and we know you can't donate food, but, food, but can you give us a deal? The guy says, when are you holding this uh, 
reception, this wedding. He says, ah, we're going to do it sometime first weekend of May. The guy says, listen, do it the previous weekend, last weekend of April. I'm doing a wedding that day, and what I'll do is for a very wealthy family. I'll just make extra food, charge it to them, and then give it to you. (laughs) My brother says, I got no problem with that. Let's do this. That's the date. So that becomes the date, last weekend in April. He finds a string quartet that says, you do it at 2 o'clock, we'll do it for free. We're going to be in between gigs, but we'll show up, we'll come in, we'll play all the music for you for free. They get all set up. My brother calls me. It's, it's uh, now been two or three months. He's been setting all this up, and he says, Mark, I need to talk to you. I said, yeah. He goes, you know what? We got the whole thing set up, but it's not going to be real, and it's not going to be right if the families aren't there. I said, have they talked to their families and told them what's going on? No. I said, well, what are you thinking of doing? He said, I think I'm going to call the parents and invite them out. What do you think? And this is honestly what I said. Don't do this. Don't call the parents. You don't even know why they're not speaking to their kids. You don't want to get in the middle of this thing. Don't call them. Just do what you've done with the friends. Trent says, you know what? I knew you were going to say this kind of thing. All I do is call you for support, and all you say is no. I'm calling them. So he calls them. The one they're most worried about is the father of the groom, who's the church elder, Southern Baptist Church, Missouri. They get a hold, uh, my brother later tells me, he says, I get a hold of the dad. And I tell him, I say, I'm a friend of your son's. I know you haven't spoken to him in five years. You need to know what's happening. They just got married. They're pregnant. They're trying to start a family, and they're deeply scared about how you're going to respond. And so there's a group of us who are throwing a surprise party, and we'd love it if you would come. He said, there's a long pause. And then the father said, I will be there. His mother will be there. His siblings will be there. His grandparents will be there. And you have any other expenses, please call me and I will pay for them. They call her parents down in Los Angeles. They get the same answer. We want to help. We want to support this. Please let us give you any money you need to make this happen. He gets the whole thing set up. Three days before the wedding, he calls me a third time and says, I forgot. We have to have someone officiate. (laughs) Can you please do this for me? And I say, no, I'm not doing this. First of all, I'm not ordained. I have an academic degree. Do you know why I have an academic degree? Because I don't want to do weddings and funerals and that kind of thing. And you know this, and I'm not doing it. He says, now hang on, it's just this one thing. I said, I'm not even ordained to do this. He says, wait a minute, what if I babysit? I said, well, how long are we talking about? Is this a Friday? He says, no, Friday and a Saturday. What about through Sunday? He says, consecutive? Yeah, consecutive. The whole weekend? Yeah, the whole weekend. Okay, you'll do the wedding? I'll do the wedding. Okay, and the deal's done. (laughs) We were desperate for babysitting. So I agree to do this thing. I go to the seminary. I get a book called How to Do a Wedding. I buy a tie. I honestly did. I go down to the Marin County and get a permit to do, to do a ceremony. I'm studying this whole thing. Meanwhile, on the day of, my brother calls Amy and Robert and tells them, um, hey, I want to take you out to a nice lunch. Why don't you guys get all dressed up, and I'll meet you in Tiburon, you know, at this nice, fancy restaurant. We'll meet you out front. They get dressed. They go out front. Somehow my brother shanghais two motorhomes. These motorhomes pull up in front of the restaurant, and um, all of her friends come out of one. His friends come out of another. They grab them, blindfold them, throw them in the motorhomes. They take off. Now, I don't know what they did with her, but uh, with him, they drove him out to a field. They put him up in a tree. They took off the blindfold and said, and handed him a notepad and said, we want you to write down everything you love about Amy. And of course he said, 
Why? What's happening? Why am I in this tree? And they said, just write it. And when he wrote it and sent it down, they would then tear it up and say, that's not good enough. Try again. These were going to be his vows. And they did something similar with her. Meanwhile, I get in the car, drive all the way up, and I'm nervous. I'm dressed in this uh, awkward suit, trying to figure out what I'm going to say. I'm worried about how these people are going to respond. I show up. We park, we're supposed to park behind a school. I walk to the neighborhood. Here's this little house with a six-foot cedar fence. I open the gate to the backyard. There's all these rows of white chairs. There's a large old oak tree that has paper lanterns in it. There's tulips and daffodils uh, blooming in a row. There's uh, roses woven through a trellis. There's little string quartets warming up. All these people are dressed up, and then I see them. The people from Missouri, the people from L.A., the families. Missourians were easy. They were all dressed in beige. (laughs) And no one is talking. Uh, They're nervous. And I realize they want to bless their children, and they don't know how. And suddenly I've set aside the how to do a wedding book, and I start to craft something else to help them facilitate this relationship, to love their own kids. Well, a few minutes later, we get a call in through the uh, radios. Uh, We're almost there. We're pulling up, so we tell everybody to get quiet. Everybody gets hides down behind the fence. The two motorhomes pull up. Uh, All the friends jump out of the motorhomes. They run around the house, and they join us on the other side of the fence. And we're all staying down there, quiet. And you can hear uh, Robert and Amy talking to my brother. He's still out there with them. And Amy is saying, you said we were going to have lunch. I am six months pregnant, and I need to eat. And my brother's walking with them, and they're walking up to this gate. And all of a sudden, my brother swings open the gate. And he walks Robert and Amy through. And he puts their arms together. And then he says to them, Now this is your wedding day. And the string quartet begins to play the wedding march. And all of us stand and turn to honor them. And they sit there and they look across and look at all of these faces. And then they just begin to collapse. All of the shame, all of the loneliness, all of the burden they've been carrying becomes too much and they can't stand. And people have to come out from the aisles, their friends, and put their arms around them and hold them up. It takes them 15 minutes to come down the little aisle because they see an aunt or a cousin, and they go into the aisle and bow their heads and their relatives rain tears over them. And when they get to the front row, they hadn't even noticed their parents until they get to the front, and then they see them there. And they just bow their heads like shamed children. And the parents stand and put their arms around them and make this little cocoon, and the grandparents run, and their siblings run up, and they're whispering prayers, And they're crying forgiveness until everyone comes up in this network of love and hands and blessing and forgiveness. And I can tell you, in that moment, in that place, every one of us, every one of us got free. Got free. That's what we're doing here. That's what happens here.
We trust one another with what we've suffered. We ask for help when we're in need. We reach out and lay our hands on those who don't even know what their prayers are. And in seeing one another and listening to one another and being willing to be moved and heartbroken by what others have suffered, we all get free. That's the promise of Jesus. That's why we come to church. Amen? Amen. So I just want to say a word of prayer and then we'll move on to the next part of our service. Holy God, we have good reasons not to trust. We have been wounded. We have been hurt. We've been shamed, unseen, unheard, unwelcomed. And we thank you for this hospital. We thank you for this care center. We thank you that you seek to continue to stir our restless hearts, to seek love, to seek trust, to not allow ourselves to be satisfied with our own self-protection. We need each other in this place, Lord. Help us to see one another. Help us to hear one another. Help us to carry soft hearts for one another. And then help us to respond with your creativity, your compassion, your grace. And we pray all this in the name of the healer, in the name of the free one, in the name of our brother Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.